Welcome to BBB National Programs Accountability Studio Podcast. I'm Mamie Cressis, and I lead BBB National Programs Children's Advertising Review Unit, or KRU. As listeners may know, KRU was the first and is the longest-running FTC-approved COPPA Safe Harbor. This podcast episode will focus on the role of Safe Harbor programs within the COPPA framework, looking at whether they're an effective complement to FTC enforcement and what the future is for the Safe Harbor provision in the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. With me today, I have Sheila Millar, a partner at the law firm Keller & Heckman. Sheila has extensive experience both in helping to design and implement robust self-regulatory programs in the U.S. and globally, and in representing clients engaged in connection with the self-regulatory process. Also with me today is Daniel Kaufman, partner at the law firm Baker Hostetler, and until recently, a deputy director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and during the transition, acting director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Thank you, Daniel and Sheila, for joining me here today. Before we get into our discussion, I wanted to take a minute to discuss the controversy swirling around the safe harbor provision of the copper rule lately. Recently, there have been concerns raised on the Hill that perhaps the safe harbor provision is not either as robust as it should be, or as one representative had put it, that perhaps it's a dangerous part of the copper rule, allowing for rubber stamping of businesses that use safe harbors. So this discussion comes up in the larger discussion around proposals to update and modernize the copper rule. And the question is, should safe harbors be part of that rule going forward? And if so, are changes needed? So what I wanted to do is to get your perspectives on what the value of the safe harbor provision is, whether it should remain part of the rule, and are there ways that the safe harbor provision could be improved or modernized as we move forward? With that, I want to turn to Sheila first and ask if she can give us a historical perspective on how the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act came to include a provision for self-regulatory safe harbor programs. Thanks, Mamie, and thanks to you and Keiru for hosting this podcast. It's a really, very important topic, the role of self-regulation in privacy as well as in advertising, I think is something that you and Daniel and I both feel pretty passionate about. And, And I think the historical question is a good place to start. The reason that self-regulation as part of the COPPA framework is really because self-regulation was the source and origin of the COPPA statute and ultimately the rule. That's because back in the day before COPPA was enacted, KRU had already developed self-regulatory guidelines for children's privacy. And so the COPPA statute built on the KRU self-regulatory framework from the get-go. Um, and because children's privacy protections were, frankly, initiated by the KRU supporters and the KRU staff working together, it's pretty self-evident, I guess, why Congress decided that children's privacy legislation should promote, prioritize, and incentivize self-regulation in the privacy sphere, much as it has done in the advertising arena. So I think the other element is that when COPPA was adopted, there was recognition by members of Congress that the pace of technology would likely exceed the ability of legislators and regulators to really think about very specific solutions. 
So the COPPA framework is flexible and that creates this important role for self-regulation within the COPPA framework. That's really helpful. Thank you. So Daniel, is there anything else that you would add there as to the historical perspective on how COPPA came to include this provision? Well, I wouldn't look at it from my perspective historically, but but sort of when you look at the FTC as a law enforcement agency, it is a relatively small agency with an enormous mission. And then when you look within that, there's about maybe 40 to 45 people at the FTC working on privacy issues, far less than that working on kids' privacy issues. So although the FTC does a lot with the resources it has, there are limitations to what they can do. Uh, Staff at the FTC provides a lot of guidance. They're responsive to company questions, but there are limits. And the purpose of the safe harbor at the end of the day is to have organizations that can provide direct assistance and guidance to organizations that are looking to comply with COPPA. And it is a complicated statute and rule. Um, You know, when COPPA was originated, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have apps. You know, there's been so much technological evolution over this time. Um, And it's not easy to comply with COPPA. And these companies can't afford to consult with law firms to get the information they need. And the safe harbors provide a really important role for those smaller organizations that are looking to comply with the law, but don't have the wherewithal to consult with with lawyers um, to get the information they need. So we really look at, or I look at, I should say, safe harbors as, as a means to help facilitate compliance. They're not deputized to be law enforcers, um, but they do play an incredibly important role in this space. Great. And that, that actually leads me to my next question that I was going to ask Sheila, which is, what do you see as the key role for safe harbors under COPPA? Where do they fit into this system? Well, let's start with the statutory language. I think when folks talk about let's change the rule or revise the rule, they ha- you have to go back and look at the statutory language. And the framework for safe harbors is embedded in COPPA at 15 U.S.C. 6503. And so Congress created both a framework for compliance, um, but it also expressly directs the FTC to offer incentives to operators, these are the entities that are subject to COPPA, to participate in safe harbors. And it it may be worth um, just jotted down here uh, the quote, 6503B1 says that in prescribing regulations to implement COPPA, the commission shall provide incentives for self-regulation by operators to implement the protections afforded children under the regulatory requirements. And the other element of that provision is 6503B2 establishes that the deemed compliance element. So compliance with self-regulatory standards that are approved as meeting the requirements of COPPA are deemed compliance with COPPA. And so the entire framework of COPPA, and I think this is reflected in in Daniel's comments about the need to recognize the relatively small staff and limited resources of the FTC, this whole framework is designed to promote more compliance and to achieve the goals of the statute, which is protecting children's privacy. Great. Thank you. And Daniel, in your experience at the FTC, how have safe harbors functioned alongside the FTC's COPPA program? 
Yeah, my experience was was very much that from the staff level, it was a successful operation. Um, there was a, you know, a lot of back and forth between FTC staff and the safe harbors in both directions. Um, the FTC staff is, you know, in addition to the statute, the rule, there are pages and pages of guidance, um, FAQs about how to comply with, with COPPA. And some of those questions came from safe harbors that would be a voice of a lot of different organizations that they've engaged with and, and bring to the FTC staff questions and the FTC staff would figure out the right answers. So there's a lot of back and forth between staff and the safe harbors. Um, and they, they play an important hands-on role that that the limited FTC staff can't quite do. So it, it functions as a really good adjunct to help organizations get into compliance. I'll just add to that that you may remember that a lot of the original FAQs were suggested by the care staff and care supporters to really help illuminate very specific practical questions about operationalizing privacy in the children's space. And so I think there's been this really good relationship between businesses, the safe harbor organizations, and the Federal Trade Commission staff, again, pulling towards a common goal of compliance and, you know, good ethical practices when it comes to collecting data from children. So I'm, I'm going to take off my moderator hat for just a second here. <laughs> and, and thank you both for those answers in the sense that it, it is validating to me as as uh, some folks who tune into this podcast probably know. Um, I was uh, very involved with the enforcement of the COPPA program for about 10 years at the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, and while I, I'm calling on you all to speak, I do want to say that I, I do want to add my personal experience there, which which echoes what you're saying, which is that we did, you know, the safe harbors would come to us when they were working with their uh, participants, when they had hard questions, they would come to us for answers. They would, and that itself gave us a window into where the technologies were going and what were the sticking point, uh, and, and did help us not only to draft FAQs, but to anticipate where changes to the rule uh, would ultimately need to be made given the technologies. And I do want to go at, talk a little bit about why you all think there is such a, a focus or a concern right now about the safe harbor provision within COPPA. Why has this become a lightning rod? Sheila, if you have any thoughts on that? I guess it's a little bit hard for me to say because I can't, you know, get into the heads of the folks who are being critical. Perhaps some of it is really failing to recognize the history and the importance of safe harbors. Certainly the recent action to drop a, an organization from the safe harbor list maybe has prompted an examination of it, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, I think it's really appropriate to re-examine it, but the, the fundamental benefits of safe harbors are essentially embedded in the statute. And so the notion that, well, let's just do away with it or change it by rule, I think risks compromising the statutory intent and really ignores the, the very practical benefits of safe harbors. I want to go back to something Daniel said earlier, really focused on the benefits to small companies. And that certainly is true. But many of my clients who participate in various safe harbors are sizable organizations. And their goal is to get different perspectives to aid in their compliance. So it's not as if 
They don't consult with their legal team internally and externally, but it's to really have those touchstones of external voices to also look at what they're doing and think about, can we build a better mousetrap? Can we do something more efficiently or better? Uh, And so I think there's a lot of motivations for companies, large and small, in participating in safe harbor organizations. That's super. Were there instances of the FTC where you saw rubber stamping or heard about rubber stamping coming out of the safe harbors? Definitely not. I, I heard it coming from a certain commissioner who used to have concerns about rubber stamping, but you know, I, I know the FTC staff very well. They have a lot of back and forth. When when things happen that pique their interests, that are potentially problematic, there is a lot of discussion with the safe harbor. There's no rubber stamping by FTC staff, uh, and they bring a lot of complicated cases. You know, it's important for FTC staff that the safe harbors are doing their jobs and doing it well. And, and if they're not, there is follow up, and we saw that with with Aristotle certainly. Yeah. And is there, and I get, then I guess I don't really need to ask the question of whether or not you think that having the safe harbor program in place has in any way uh, impeded the FTC's ability to bring its own enforcement actions. Well, look, it certainly hasn't impeded their ability broadly. And, you know, to the extent there have been isolated instances where the FTC starts an investigation and the company is subject to a safe harbor, I mean, the safe harbor is real and, and they get to take advantage of that. But that will lead to a lot of inquiries from staff to the safe harbor, to the company to figure out what happened. Why is this organization part of the safe harbor program and engaged in these practices? So, again, I'm not going to say that it never happened, but it certainly wasn't any sort of systemic issue where, you know, we look at a bunch of targets for COPPA cases and, you know, 95 percent of them were safe harbors and we couldn't bring a case. Uh, That's certainly not the case. Uh, And the FTC has had a very robust enforcement presence in COPPA. So Daniel raised um, the issue of a former uh, former commissioner who had a lot of concerns about um, about the safe harbor program. Uh, I don't think it's any secret there that that uh, was Commissioner Chopra. And we know that in 2020, um, Commissioner Chopra, in response to an FTC COPPA case, outlined a lot of a number of possible changes to the safe harbor framework to, in his mind, that would in his mind strengthen the program. And then, as as you all know, um, just uh, just back about a month ago, Representatives Castor and Schakowsky, who have also introduced a bill to update the Kids Privacy Act and introduce bill, um, have also reached out to the safe harbors and asked the safe harbors to respond to the representatives' questions about how how the safe harbors work, but also afforded. Uh, the safe harbors the opportunity to comment themselves on Commissioner Chopra's suggestions regarding the safe harbor provision. And so I wanted to go through a couple of his suggestions with you two and give you a chance to comment on those as well. So I guess I would ask Daniel, what are your thoughts on Commissioner Chopra's suggestion that COPPA safe harbors should be uh, routinely reviewed by the commission uh, and the commission should have to vote on maintaining their accreditation. And as Chopra put it, rather, that would be an alternative to what he called the lifetime approval approach of COPPA. Um, so I'm generally not a fan of creating solutions to problems that don't really exist. Um, you know, the FTC just demonstrated that if they want to get rid of a COPPA safe harbor, they can. And they did that with Aristotle. And the rule does not provide a lifetime appointment. 
uh, and the commission can always decertify a safe harbor. So again, I I get it. There is this distrust from Commissioner Chopra, I believe, and, and from some of the FTC leadership about the fundamental being of self-regulation. I mean, I do think that's part of the starting point here. Uh, and we've seen some statements coming out of the FTC raising concerns about just this concept that you have the entities that are being regulated are sort of funding this organization that um, is supposed to be watching out for their compliance. And there seems to be just a fundamental distrust that that sort of model can work. And I, I get it that in extreme cases, there can be takeover and, and, and industry capture. That's not the case here. That's not what we're seeing with the safe harbors. Uh, they're doing a good job. When they need to do a better job, staff engages with them and has discussions and has follow-up. So I, I don't think there's any need for sort of any routine recertification. It's, it's great for commissioners to ask questions to FTC staff. That's that's their job. They're, they're Senate confirmed and they should be asking questions and, and hats off to them when they do that. But I don't think the solution is to create paperwork. Uh, I know uh, I've heard commissioners raise concerns about unnecessary paperwork. To me, that would be unnecessary paperwork. Engage with staff, find out how they engage with the safe harbors. And I, I think you can do that constructively without requiring more um, paperwork. Sheila, how about Commissioner Choker's suggestion that safe harbors should be required to disclose their performance data to the public? including complaints they've received and disciplinary actions they've taken. And then also, I guess, a related um, suggestion, which is that safe harbors would need to submit to the FTC all documentation regarding disciplinary actions against their participants. Yeah, let's maybe break that into two parts. So one is, how are safe harbor organizations funded? And the second is, you know, what level of transparency back to the commission is necessary and appropriate to advance the policy goals. So on the first question, value of safe harbors is based on the knowledge of the safe harbor organization staff and their ability to understand both technology and policy with a particular eye towards children's privacy and the children's content landscape. And so Hopefully, all of the safe harbor organizations have some unique skill sets there, but these services don't come for free. And I, what I find troubling is the underlying notion that you should cut off that all these entities should absolutely be not-for-profit. They should just offer their services for free. It's a little bit like the demand that all content on the internet should be free, including no ads. I mean, these services cost money to offer, and in order to do it well, there has to be a revenue stream uh, behind it. And if that can be enhanced by appropriate consulting services, I don't think it should be circumscribed. You know, it may be a point to pay attention to because you want to be sure that the safe harbor organization's advice is sound and objective. That is an important goal, but these blanket comments, I think, are improper. As to the level of transparency, I think it's contrary to the goals of the statute and the express statutory language to incentivize participation in self-regulation. The whole process of safe harbors is to provide essentially a safe space to encourage dialogue between safe harbor participants and the safe harbor organization. And you're going to get into very specific practical questions of 
I want to do this type of initiative. Here's my challenge in getting verifiable parental consent, or here's a constraint I'm having in complying with this part of the rule. Whatever it is, you want to encourage that transparency and allow some time to correct. Even if we look at other laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, for example, there are some cure provisions. And so that notion of you don't bring the hammer down right away. And I think Daniel said it really eloquently. Safe harbors are not an arm of enforcement of the FTC. They're a creature of Congress designed to encourage good privacy practices. And I don't think it makes good policy sense to take action that essentially undermines the goals of Congress. So that being said, you know, there is also interest in uh, looking at ways that the safe harbor program could be strengthened. And so I would throw it out to you, Daniel. Um, do you envision ways that the safe harbor provision could be strengthened without creating any of these disincentives that you two have talked about? Yeah, Um you know, look, I think the program is working well. I, I left the agency four months ago. I still do. Tef- well, I don't technically wear a law enforcement hat anymore, but I sometimes feel like I do. You know, from my time at the FTC, it was working well. And I think staff was getting more engaged with the safe harbors, getting more information, making sure their reporting to the agency was more robust. So I don't think you need to change the statute or change the rules to sort of just encourage further dialogue between staff and the safe harbors to make sure they're doing their jobs properly. I also don't think you want um, membership in a safe harbor to to be a, a vehicle for shaming the company if they do something wrong. Um, you know, this notion of reporting fouls to the FTC, you know, there's, and as Sheila said it very well, there's a lot of back and forth between the safe harbors and its members about how to comply with the law. And there's a lot of different ways of doing it. And there's free discussion and ample discussion, you know, at what point would that lead to an an FTC referral? Um, Healthy dialogue is good to have. It is a complicated statute. I keep going back to that point. It's not a um, one size fits all statute. It's it's complicated. It takes a lot of finesse and creativity. And I think the Safe Harbor program has really been helpful in helping companies to develop the solutions that will fit their business needs. So Sheila, just to put you on the spot, any uh, simple changes, modifications you, you would think are reasonable here? Well, I guess I'm more inclined to think about what's not reasonable and what won't advance the statutory goals. And I think too much transparency, the compromises, that safe space and the confidentiality that participants have in freely speaking with the safe harbor organization will um, not be in anybody's best interest. If a scheme is set up that does not encourage candor with the safe harbor organizations, then the safe harbor organizations can't do their job. And if the sword of enforcement is hanging over both the safe harbor participants' head and the safe harbor organization's head, it will lead to a really stilted discussion. And if there is mandated transparency, then what's the incentive for companies to participate you know, okay, then it's maybe better for me to hire a high-priced lawyer and figure it out as opposed to getting the guidance from a safe harbor organization. So I see a lot of downsides. Where can safe harbors maybe make some advances? I mean, one of the thorny issues remains verifiable parental consent. That's been a perennial problem. We don't have good, easy, fast, you know, convenient methods. It's 
it's really difficult. And, you know, I think there have been instances where certain proposals were shot down by the FTC. And I think a couple of years ago in their request for information, they said, well, you know, why can't you, why don't you revisit this? Well, if you've invested time and effort to request approval for a VPC method and it gets turned down, you don't have a lot of incentive to go back. But I think maybe broader dialogue with the safe harbor organizations about some creative ways to manage these issues could be helpful. E-signatures, for example, government agencies accept e-signatures, but the FTC doesn't accept it as a method of verifiable parental consent. So I think there are some opportunities, again, more in the dialogue space than really how do you fix or improve safe harbors? I also think you have to trust safe harbors. I mean, you guys, all of the safe harbor organizations have who've been approved, apparently have done so, have been approved because you know what the heck you're doing. And you, we all have a sixth sense if somebody is coming into the organization as window dressing, they're stringing you along, they're not being candid with you, then you have the ability to say, you know what? I'm pulling the plug. You got to fix this by X date. If you don't, I'm going to refer you to the FTC. So the ultimate ability that safe harbor organizations have, if they're not as successful as they want to be in chivying folks along to compliance, is bringing down some sort of hammer of enforcement. Um, so I think the system does work as it's intended to. But if we think about the goal is good compliance, broader awareness of privacy, embracing, you know, the basic principles of privacy, data minimization, data security, all those elements, then the best way to do that is through more dialogue and more investment in making people aware and in making sure that there are vehicles that people can actually benefit from their effort to comply as opposed to, you know, being a focus of, uh, you know, one little mistake here or there, and then they get uh, an enforcement action. That's just contrary to, it's not going to promote and incentivize participation in safe harbors. Sure. Very true. That's really everything I, I wanted to discuss. I think, uh, you know, we're all waiting to see what the FTC does as far as uh, updating COPPA. Um, I think none of us have expectations that that will be anytime soon. As an organization that runs a safe harbor, I'm obviously uh, waiting for the, the next set of challenges that uh, that we are going to help our participants to uh, work with. Does anybody have anything else you wanted to say before we say goodbye? Thank you so much for hosting this. And Sheila, wonderful to do this with you as well. But look, from my perspective, Self-regulatory organizations like the safe harbors play an incredibly important role, uh, and the FTC has traditionally been very supportive of self-regulation and, and what it does to the economy and how it protects consumers. And I, I certainly do hope we'll be hearing more sort of pro-self-regulation comments coming out of the FTC than, than what we've been hearing lately. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and, and thanks, Mamie, for your thoughtful questions and for your really terrific answers, Daniel. It's been really a, a great joy to be part of this panel with you guys. So thanks again. That wraps up today's podcast. Thank you both so much for your time and sharing your insights on the COPPA rules safe harbor provision. And thank you listeners for tuning in to BBB National Programs Accountability Studio Podcast. 
We'll see you next time. Bye.